I uh, had a pretty encouraging uh, week uh, myself. Um, I was really encouraged uh, by last Sunday and uh, the generosity of all of you. Um, we, uh, we were able to help someone out this week, which was really cool uh, because of that. And so uh, that was really encouraging. Um, the other thing I was encouraged by was um, our Bible study. Uh, every Wednesday, we meet here at the group, meet here as a group, um, and we study the Bible. We've been going through the book of Hebrews uh, chapter by chapter, and, uh, and we kind of allow the Spirit to lead our, our conversations. And, and every week it kind of goes in a different direction. We, we use the, the, the scripture to, to lead us there. And, uh, and so this past week, one of the conversations that, that was springboarded out of the text was this idea of evangelism. And it led to some really encouraging stories of people being used to lead others to Christ. Um, one had, had picked up a hitchhiker and led them to the Lord. Uh, another person had shared that they were led to the Lord through a gospel track, which is really cool. Um, others, it was family members, and it was really refreshing to hear some of those stories. And I was amazed by how God uses people to reach people. Even more, we have an incredible privilege as Christians that we are able to participate in the kingdom of God. God uses us to be salt and light in our individual context. And, and the amazing thing is if we're aware, if we're prepared and undistracted, it opens up the potential for many people to come to know Jesus through your life. God could easily do this on his own. He could reach his, your neighbors on his own. He could reach your non-Christian friends on his own, but he instead chooses to use you and I. He invites us to participate um, in building his kingdom. And so it got me thinking about this sermon this week. We're looking at what it means to be salt and light of the earth. There is a lot of potential for God to use us in our own context to reach people if we're willing to be on mission, if we're willing to be salt and light. And there's great joy that comes when God uses us to reach people around us. So if you have a Bible, open up to chapter 5, verse 13 to 20. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 5, verse 13 to 20. Um, this is our second week in the Sermon of the Mount. Um, it is a famous sermon by Jesus himself. It is written to those who follow Christ, who, um, who desire to be a part of his kingdom. And so it is very much applicable to us today. So let's read it together, verse, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Verse 17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass away from the least of these commands and teaches until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. 
So last week, we left off with Jesus giving a bunch of blessings. We looked through the Beatitudes, and, and it really, again, it was focusing on our hearts, the attitude of our heart, which is really what the Sermon on the Mount is going to keep pressing in on. Jesus is moving deeper than religious rules, deeper than outward behaviors, and he's focusing on what do you believe in your heart? Why? I think because the way that you live your life is going to reflect what you really believe deep down in your heart. We can see an example of that in the Pharisees. We we were introduced to them a few chapters ago. They were the religious elite of the time. They, They really didn't care about others. They really didn't even care about God. They ultimately wanted to be better than everyone else, have a higher status than everyone else, and and more righteousness than everyone else. And Jesus often comes um, in conflict with them. And, and, and what they do is they use the religious rules and traditions to get to that status with the hope that God would honor it. But obviously God does not honor it. And he says, your actions don't mean anything because the intention of your heart is all wrong. And so the Sermon on the Mount is going to help us get to the root of the problems in our lives. It's going to teach us that there's more to God's kingdom, more to being a Christian than just going to church every week. Our whole lives are to reflect what we really believe in our hearts. And what we believe deep down is going to affect how we can become salt and light to our world. And so this week, we're getting a picture of of what believers are to look like in the world while also touching on, on the righteousness of Christ. So we're going to look at three things, what it means to be salt, what it means to be light, and what it means for Jesus to be our righteousness. So the first is, what does it mean to be salt? Verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Um, this is the first metaphor that we see Jesus using and referring to salt. Now, a metaphor refers to something. It represents something. It's a figure of speech that points to something else often used in poetry. And Jesus spoke, especially when he was teaching, often in parables and in metaphors. And so when he says, you are the salt of the earth, what does that mean? What does that salt represent that relates to us as Christians on earth? Well, I read up to 11 different things that this metaphor could point to, but I'm going to point us to two of the more common understandings of what Jesus meant and probably what the original audience would have understood. If we look at salt, it does a few things. First is salt adds flavor. It adds zest. It makes things taste good. I love salt and I love what salt does to food. We add salt to everything because it just makes food taste better. As Christians, we're called to be the salt of the earth. We are to add life and zest and to bring the goodness of Christ into this world so that they can taste the goodness of Christ. So just like salt makes a difference to our food, Christ makes a difference to our lives. There is peace and love and satisfaction, joy and hope in Christ that our world needs to taste. And our lives are to represent that. R.C. Sproul, a a well-known Christian teacher, said this, We are not salt merely of the earth, but we are the salt for the earth, that we may add this tasteful zest to life itself. There is a, a hope and a joy in Christ that we can display through our lives that will add flavor, that will bring life into a lifeless world. So salt adds good flavor. In the same way, we want people to taste the goodness of Christ in our world. 
The second thing is that salt is also a great preservative. And Jesus' original audience would have known that well. They didn't have fancy um, temperature-controlled refrigerators that we have today. Instead, if they had meat or different things, they would have to preserve it in salt. And so within the, meta the metaphor context, when salt is mixed with other substances, it preserves it from decay. When we're mixed with our world, we help preserve it from total corruption. Our world needs the influence of the church and the influence of Christ in the culture. And in the past, there's been lots of good Christ-honoring contributions that Christians have brought into the culture to help preserve it from total destruction. We look at like orphanages that have been started by Christians. The, the needy have been helped by Christians. Great organizations have been started like um, Compassion or World Vision or even the Samaritan's Purse that we're helping with today. Things have become more beautiful with Christians in the world. Christians have contributed greatly to the arts. As Christians, we reflect the creativity of our, our God. And so whether that be through music or art or literature, we can bring that to our world and glorify God. We've contributed to higher education. Many of the most prestigious schools like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were started by Christians. The Puritans established Harvard College in 1636. And this was the mission statement in 1642. It says, Everyone shall consider as the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Canada's original charter of rights was built on Christian principles reflecting the supremacy of God. It's not like that anymore. But Christians have influenced culture and society for good across history that has helped preserve it. Now, we look at a few of those things and we wonder, well, what's happened? Because a lot of those things don't reflect Christian values anymore. Well, the enemy always wants to take away our saltiness in the world. His, his main goal is to make us useless, to keep us distracted, to stop us from ever engaging in the world so that he can reverse our influence. He wants to tear it all down. But if we continue to bring Christ into the world, into our culture, it will offer hope in places where there's a lot of darkness. But then notice there's a bit of a shift in the verse. It says, if, if salt should lose its taste, it is no longer good for anything. And ultimately, the explanation of this is simple. As disciples of Christ, you must never allow yourself to become useless in the mission that God has called you to. And this can happen by being distracted. Um, there's no shortage of things in our world to distract us. It could be having your focus shifted from Christ to something else. Uh, we call those an idol where you begin to worship that instead of Jesus, and then you'll lose sight of the mission. It could be just laziness. I've said this before that Christianity is not like getting on a cruise ship where you kick back and relax and disengage from reality and, and coast to eternity. Becoming a Christian is, is getting onto a battleship ready for war. You come to church to prepare, to be equipped, to be healed, to be encouraged, to have your heart re-centered around Christ so that you can go back out into the world and be salt and light and represent Christ in the darkness of our world. You have a mission. And the gospel of Matthew is going to lead all the way to that mission in the last um, verse where he's going to say, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a mission that we are called to. We're called to be salt on mission with a desire that people would taste the goodness of Jesus. 
And so Jesus is saying, go represent me in the world. Second point, we are to be light. Verse 4 says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. Building on the same idea of salt. We've talked about light over the last few weeks. And scripture tells us that God is light, but it also tells us that God's people are light. And so this metaphor of being light of the world is having people not only taste the goodness of Jesus, but see the goodness of Jesus in your life. As disciples, there should be some evidence of Christ working in your life. Our sanctification is constantly growing us to be more conformed to the person of Jesus, and that results in fruit and a desire for righteousness and even personal holiness. There should be evidence of hope and peace and love and joy in your life. So the city on a hill cannot be hidden. The work of Christ in your life cannot be hidden. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this in his book on discipleship. He said, discipleship is as visible as the light in the night, as a mountain in the flatlands. To flee into invisibility is to deny the call. Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. Following Christ is visible. It is a light that cannot be hidden. And so do you have visible evidence that you follow Christ? Do your non-Christian friends know that you follow Christ? Do your non-Christian family members see any difference in your life? Do your non-Christian co-workers see a difference from the way that you live your life versus the way they live their life? We're not called to be invisible in this world. We're called to be light in the world, to show Christ through our lives. Light is not to be confined to this building on a Sunday morning. We need to bring it to the darkness and, and shine it in everyday contexts of our lives. And I believe that God will do powerful things if we're willing to do that. So then how do we be a light in the world? Well, in verse 16, it says, that they may see your good works and give glory to God. Okay, so through good works is where people are going to see the light of Christ in you. But hold on, it needs to be good works in a gospel framework. Because remember, Jesus is constantly looking at our heart. It's not religion which says, I obey all these things so I'm loved and accepted by God. Instead, it's the gospel says, I'm fully loved and accepted by God, therefore I will do these things out of gratitude. So the intention of the heart and, and the way that you do good works has to be in the right place. The motivation of your heart has to be in the, the right place. And when your heart is in the right place, when you have gospel intentions, then bringing a light to the world will be a privilege rather than a burden. It'll be an honor rather than a religious weight. It'll be out of gratitude rather than striving. And when the gospel shapes our intentions, it affects our good works. Then we can give generously without a return. We can serve unthankful people. We can love those who don't deserve it. We can offer grace and mercy to those who are unworthy of it. We can have joy in the midst of sorrow. You can share Jesus as your hope, and you can pray for those who persecute you. You can do all these things with joy and satisfaction. Why? Because Jesus did all that for you. 
Your Savior demonstrated his love for you. He died on the cross for you. He resurrected to life for you. He defeated sin and Satan for you. He brought you from darkness into the light. He brought you from despair into hope. And he gave grace and mercy where it was never deserved. And he did that to demonstrate his love and his compassion towards you. So that you could experience the hope that is found in the light. And as a beautiful response, as Christians, we can radiate that light that we've been given to others so that more would experience the hope found in the light of the Christ. So let us desire to be a billboard pointing right back to Jesus. You are the light of the world. And the hope is that people would see evidence of Jesus in your life and give glory to God. And that's what it says, to give glory to God. And it's not going to be easy. I had a good friend of mine in Kelowna who worked in a place that was really quite spiritually dark. And he would tell me that the people there were just constantly miserable and and corrupt, that their language was horrible, and that their attitudes were just constantly discouraging. And so we would meet for coffee often. And I I remember saying, um, like, remember the hope that you have in the gospel. Like, as much as you're seeing the darkness, make sure that they see the light of Christ in your life and the hope, eternal hope that you have. And I'd say that God has a a reason why you're there, and it's maybe because he's calling you to bring light into that place. And here's the property of light. It attracts. You think about moths and bugs. They're always constantly attracted to the light. There's something attractive about the light. And so we need to be praying that people would be attracted to the light of Christ. So the desire to be salt is that people would taste the goodness of Christ. And the desire for, uh, for light is that people would see the goodness of Christ. And then we come to this third idea, which is a little bit of a shift from the, the previous two. It's a whole new paragraph. And this is where righteousness comes from. It says in verse 17, Don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I do not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these things, commands, will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven." That's a bit of a bold statement. And, and Jesus is saying the righteousness of his followers must surpass the scribes and the Pharisees, which were the religious elite of the time. What Jesus is saying is that actually it must surpass religiosity. Now, the Jews of the time would have probably been quite concerned because Jesus, is Jesus saying that the Old Testament rules weren't, weren't enough? Saying that he's getting rid of the Old Testament And it's neither of those two. Instead, Jesus is saying, I'm going to fulfill the Old Testament. And that actually brings up a really important point um, about the Old Testament. What is our relationship as Christians with the Old Testament? I've heard people say that I, I belong to the New Covenant. The Old Testament is past. It's gone. It's not relevant to me anymore. But here's the deal. We're, while not all the rules apply anymore, the Old Testament is still relevant. It's part of our story as Christians. It's the beginning of Christianity. And the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. 
And our God never changes and neither does his intentions. And the Old Testament points straight to the gospel. R.C. Ryle describes it like this. He says, the Old Testament is the embryo of Christianity. The Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament, or um, the law and the prophets is what is also referred to. We're always pointing towards Jesus and the gospel. It is always going to be fulfilled in Christ. And so Jesus says, I am here now and I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he does so by having every ritual that a Jewish boy performed by his parents on him. He lived out the law perfectly so that no one could accuse him of sin. He fulfilled every messianic prophecy ever written. And ultimately in his death and his resurrection, Jesus fulfilled every type of ceremony and sacrifice that the Jews had to perform because of their sin, which then ushered in a new covenant in Christ's blood. He was the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate atonement for sin. So Jesus fulfills the law and the prophet's and what they required. And so for you and I, we live under a new covenant, and many of the rules of the nation of, for Israel don't apply to us anymore, but some still do. Many of the Ten Commandments are still reiterated in the New Testament. And there's also a law written on our hearts. And if anything, Jesus sets the bar much higher. And our sanctification should actually far exceed that of the Jews who only had the Old Testament as their guide. We now have the promise of the Holy Spirit that is guiding us, that's leading us into truth and into righteousness. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament in its full completion. We have the knowledge of the resurrection. We have the gospel that has been fully demonstrated in Christ more clearly than any Jew would have ever seen. And so for you and I, we've been given more and therefore are responsible for more. And so the bar, it's been set really high. And Jesus says that your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, hold on. That kind of righteousness is, is impossible. You and I could never live up to the bar that Jesus has set as the standard for righteousness. And here's the thing. Nobody can. Only Jesus was righteous. Only Jesus was sinless. Only Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law perfectly. And the hope that we have to cling to is Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the gospel. It is there that he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins so that we would not have eternal punishment but everlasting life. On the cross, Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He took it upon himself. And so as new creations, as followers of Christ, we have his righteousness and when the father looks down and he sees us, he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so our response is that we would desire righteousness, that we would desire holiness as a response, not to earn anything, because it's already, we've been given everything. It's a response of the heart rather than a rule. And what is amazing is that's going to produce good works in our lives that's what's going to make us salty on this earth to people who need to taste the goodness of Christ. That's what's going to be the light that visibly shows in our lives the goodness of Christ to people around us. What Christ has done has made it possible for us to be salt and light. So let us desire to be the salt and the light of the earth 
that our culture, our non-Christian friends, our family, our coworkers, our community needs, that they would taste and see the goodness of Christ through your life and that many would come to Jesus through that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and, and then we'll pray. Would you bow your head with me? God, thank you that you are light, that all goodness and hope and peace and joy comes from you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people on mission that would not lose our saltiness, that we would not cover the light of our lives under a basket. Help us to show the world through our lives that there is hope found in you. Lord, I pray that the gospel would give us a desire for personal holiness that would be honoring and glorifying to you. I pray that you would continue to shape our hearts. Help us to understand what we believe deep down in our hearts and and would you sanctify us to become who you've created us to be. Thank you that you loved us so much that you were willing to die for us, that you gave your life for us and you gave your righteousness to us. Lord, we love you and we praise you now. In your precious name, amen.